0: I have been a man who came from these docks and these ships and earned my living here. I have inhaled the dust of the sweatboards and smelled the stale urine in the hole. I have seen men mangled and killed. The waterfront is my life. I know what I'm talking about.
1: Cleophis Williams was the first African-American president of Local 10 of the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. Although the ILWU as an organization was committed to equal opportunity and opposed to all forms of discrimination, blacks in the Union still had to confront systematic racism. A new book documents that struggle: Cleophis Williams, My Life Story in the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Local Ten, on today's show, we'll hear from Clarence Thomas and Dolores Lemon Thomas, who compiled and edited the book, Working Closely, with Cleophas's widow, Sadie Williams. The talk was originally featured on WBAI's Building Bridges radio show. And on Labor History and Two,
2: the year was 1921. That was the day that the Green Bay Packers football team received a charter from the American Professional Football Association.
1: I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today.
2: I'm Mimi Rosenberg. I'm Ken
3: We're building bridges. And now we bring you the story of Cleofus
0: Williams. In the 15 years that I've worked on the waterfront, this is the first time I have spoken on this microphone. But I don't come before you as a stranger. I made my 21st birthday on the waterfront. Every penny I have earned since. I have been a man who came from these docks and these ships and earned my living here. I have inhaled the dust of the sweatboards and smelled the stale urine in the hole. I have seen men mangled and killed the waterfront is my life. I know what I'm talking about.
3: Clarence Thomas brings to life through his soul the soul of Cleophas Williams, the remarkable memoir of Cleophas Williams and the heroism of a revolutionary working class leader.
1: Uh,
0: solidarity greetings to everyone. Yeah. Hello. Uh, Brother Clarence Thomas here, a retired member of ILWU Local 10. For those of you who don't know what the ILWU stands for, it's the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Local 10 in San Francisco. For people who may not be familiar with the ILWU, we are responsible for the loading and unloading of maritime cargo on the west coast. Local 10 is the only predominantly African-American Longshore local. and there's a there's a specific reason for that. One of the great strikes of the 20th century took place on the West Coast in 1934. And it was one of the leaders of that strike was a man by the name of Harry Bridges. He was an immigrant, not from South America, or from uh, uh, another third world country. He was from Australia, of One of the things that was remarkable about that strike was that the bosses typically would bring in black people to work as scabs, crossing the picket line. It was also a situation for the black community to have a chance to work on the docks because of white supremacy and segregation in the unions. So that was quite a conundrum. But Harry Bridges and other leftists, some were Marxist Leninists others were syndicalists, others were uh, anarchists, who were in the leadership specifically in San Francisco. They understood the relationship between race and class, and they knew that they could not win the strike with black people crossing the picket line. So what would they do? Bridges and others with the assistance of C.L. Dallas, who was the uncle of Ron Dellums, who served in Congress for over 25 years and was also the mayor of the city of Oakland. CL was the vice president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car for And he was also the head of the NAAC in the Bay Area. He facilitated Bridges and others being able to go to black churches. And the minister said, OK, we'll listen to what you have to say, notwithstanding the fact that we know your members don't want us working on the waterfront. They were, he were allowed to come into the church to speak. And what he did was to say, we are offering a real new deal to the black community. We cannot win the strike with you crossing the picket line. And if you should join us on the picket line, we will ensure that black people, we were called Negroes in those days, will be hired in, bar- in various positions up and down the West Coast. It didn't happen overnight. But it did happen. And that's where Cleophas comes in. Let me just go back a little bit to say this. 1934, before there was any notion of affirmative action, the leadership of that strike in San Francisco realized that the destinies of African-American and white workers were inextricably linked. And that discrimination was a tool of the bosses. Because even before there were black people working on the waterfront, they had a system that they called the shape-up, where they would gather longshore workers together. And in order for a longshore worker to work, they would have to either be of a certain ethnicity, pay a kickback, And in some instances, it was so terrible that longshoremen had to arrange to have dates with their sisters and wives for the bosses, or they had to pay them to go to work. That is discriminatory. That's what it is. The bosses are always looking to divide the working class. The proliferation of African-Americans into the ILWU occurred in the 1940s. And that's when Cleophus Williams came into play. Cleophus Williams was an African-American man who grew up within the shackles and the horror of discrimination and white supremacy in rural uh, Arkansas. He was born in 1923 to parents who had graduated from college. His father was a principal. His mother was a teacher who had graduated from Tuskegee. Education was very important to the Williams family. He matriculated. He attended high school and graduated number two in his class. He went on to Arkansas A, M, and N College, which is now the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, historical black college. He was there for two years, but he got married he wanted to get married. And he wanted to come to California because he had relatives there. And during World War II, in the Bay Area, that is where folks from all over the country came to go to work building victory ships. Black and white workers, some black women who come straight out the cotton fields worked in a high-tech industry. Many of you are familiar with the term Rosie the Riveter. Women who were working, many, many of them were welders. Some were riveters. And because they had great expertise in being able to sew, everyone could discern the difference between their welding and the welding of a man. Interesting. Yeah. Cleopas Williams arrives in the Bay Area in 1942, which is the same year that my maternal grandfather, Lee Edwards, came to the Bay Area. And they arrived at the 16th Street West Oakland train station. My mother has often said that black people would gather at the 16th Street train station to look to see People coming in from all over the South—it's quite something. Cleopas goes to work for a place called Moore Shipyard. Moore Shipyard was a place that advertised that we welcome Negroes. They hired black people. There's a famous photograph that I would just like to make reference to. It was taken in 1942, and it involves Paul Robeson. The great, singer, humanitarian, internationalist, fighter for socialism and the working class. This is a photograph of Paul singing at Moore's shipyard in 1942. Wasn't it all unusual for Paul Robeson to perform in these kinds of settings? Cleophis worked there until he was drafted into the military. And because of an injury that he sustained in high school, he got out of the military pretty quickly. And one day, he was at a barbershop, and he overheard some people talking about, you know, they're hiring on the waterfront in San Francisco. They're hiring longshoremen. Went down, signed up. Cleophas was a guy who had tremendous intellect When he shared his manuscript with me, he gave me his handwritten copy. Cleophas was a guy who could take notes at a meeting, and at the conclusion of the meeting, turn them in, and they would not have to be edited. That was the kind of guy that he was. He was also a fellow who, Despite his intellect and so forth, he was sort of a shy guy. And I'd like to read something to you that illustrates that. This is the first time that Cleophas Williams ever spoke at a union meeting. He had been on the waterfront for 15 years. Quote, in the 15 years that I've worked on the waterfront, this is the first time I have spoken on this microphone. But I don't come before you as a stranger. I made my 21st birthday on the waterfront. Every penny I have earned since. I have been a man who came from these docks and these ships and earned my living here. I have inhaled the dust of the sweatboards and smelled the stale urine in the hole. I have seen men mangled and killed. The waterfront is my life. I know what I'm talking about." This is the first time that he ever got up to speak at a union meeting. I'd just like for a moment to read something to you. This is part of my introduction. African-Americans have been an integral part in building the world-renowned legacy of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. Such an individual as Cleophas Williams, whose distinguished career as a member of that union spanned 38 years. Solidarity stories and the oral history of the ILWU by Harvey Schwartz includes an interview with Williams. Cleopas Williams' election as president of ILWU Local 10 in 1967 made him the highest elected African American to serve as an officer in the entire ILWU. This was the same year that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at the local and was made an honorary member. This is a quote from Peter Cole in his book, Doc Worker Power, Race and Activism in Durban and San Francisco, where he explains the ILWU, specifically Local 10, as having been engaged in civil rights unionism and other social movements in the 1960s. He describes how the historical significance of Bay Area Area longshore workers has been ignored by historians. Dr. King, when he addressed the members of Local 10 said, quote, I don't feel like a stranger in the midst of the ILWU. We have been strengthened by the support you have given our struggles. The November 1967 issue of the Oakland Post newspaper described Williams' election as the president of Local 10 thusly. Quote, the election of Williams is a historical breakthrough in labor-minority relations. As chief dispatcher, he now becomes the highest elected Negro officer in the ILWU and president of the largest 4,800 members, by the way, local on the West Coast. When Cleophas entered Local 10, there were no more than 1,000 African-American members. By the late 60s, blacks outnumbered whites in the local. Not only did Local 10 support the Civil Rights Movement, but also the Black Liberation Movement. David Hilliard, Chief of Staff of the Black Panther Party, was a Local 10 member in 1967. There were scores of others in Local 10 who were supporters, sympathizers, and relatives of party members. The party sold hundreds of their weekly newspaper in the hiring hall. At the biennial ILW convention, Brother Williams addressed the convention delegates regarding the union's continuing commitment to fighting racism and submitted a resolution of support for Angela Davis. It called for her to receive a fair trial and immediate release on bail. In the May 1971 ILW dispatcher, the official newspaper of the ILWU, A statement of policy on racism said that, quote, because unions must be spokesmen for all the people who work for a living and because we must be in advance of all social and economic programs for progress, we have no choice but to take the lead (coughs) in eliminating the scourge of racism from our land, unquote. The statement charged that, quote, historically racism has been fostered by employers to keep workers divided from each other and that this tactic has been at least partially successful. The resolution called out the relentless crusade to kill Angela Davis and how prejudice and frame-ups are now employed to crush black militancy. The same device has always been used against labor when the powers of big business and government decide that organized workers are, quote, getting out of line in their struggle for a better life. The union statement on racism pays special attention to the necessity of an alliance and understanding with militant minority youth. In 1972, Cleopas was elected to his second term as president of Local Ten. During the ILW's longest strike in its history, Yet during the most challenging time, he played host to an Angela Davis rally on January 8, 1972 at the local's hiring hall. In in 1973, he is re-elected president by one-vote margin. He quoted in the Post newspaper, I owe my election to young Panther types who got out and helped me to win votes. In closing, Dolores and I feel very fortunate to have been able to gain Sister Sadie's confidence and trust in allowing us to use the many handwritten manuscripts and personal archives of Cleopas Williams to allow him to speak about his life in his own words. His autobiography covers many parts. Mainly he talks about his life as an activist working on the waterfront, which is not only important for ILWU members, but for trade unionists throughout the labor movement. I want to thank Sadie and her daughter Jackie for gathering material and allowing Declare Publishing to publish this important work that chronicles the life of one of the the many who have contributed to making the ILW Local 10 known throughout the world for what it stands for, the actions that it has taken on behalf of the working class and oppressed nationalities at home and abroad. No one can speak for a worker like a worker can speak for himself. I'd like to quote something from Cleopas, if I may. I write these memories because I think the story should be told. I write them because there is a universal silence about the contributions of black longshoremen on the West Coast, although as though we have never existed. People from many sources have come to me for interviews, and I have given some. I have spoken into tape recorders for someone else to to transcribe, but the story of my 38 years working as a longshoreman cannot be told orally in two hours with a professional writer. I am writing the story myself. I take responsibility for all errors and omissions. I have no access to grind. I'm comfortably retired with a good longshore pension and Social Security, which I have a right to because I earned them. I also write as a witness to one of the greatest stories ever told, the ILWU story. It is the history of a leader named Harry Bridges and a rank and file who supported his ideas and dreams and built the best union in the country. It is about men who differed with Bridges and were unafraid to take him on. The things that I've just mentioned to you, and what is happening in the ILWU today. This past January and February, I was a part of a 13-person delegation that went to South Africa. We were invited there to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Durban working class uprising against apartheid. The ILW Local 10 put, executive board put forward a motion. And that motion called for the delegation to meet with the largest trade union in South Africa, the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, otherwise known as NUSA. And the delegation met with the General Secretary Urban Jim. And they appealed to Urban Jim to take solidarity action in support of Mumia Abu Jamal. He wrote a very compelling statement to the judge. He also did a video, but more importantly, there was a historic demonstration in Petroleum. Demanding the freedom of Mumia Abu Jamal. You know how important that was. This is the continuation of the work that people like Brother Cleopus Williams, people like Brother Leo Robinson, who was a part of the first labor delegation to go to Cuba, I went to Baghdad in 2003 to meet Iraqi trade unionists. I've been to Cuba several times myself. Harry Bridges believed that it was critical for rank-and-fileers to make these visits, not the leadership, so that we could come back and report and build relationships. This is Dolores Lemon Thomas, she edited this book, along with Mobilizing in Our Own Name, the work Worker March.
3: The book brought tears to my eyes because I learned so much about my upbringing by editing Cleophys' book. My father left New Orleans because some night riders were after him based on what happened to him on his job. He came to Oakland, California. He also experience working at Moore Shipyard and other places, naval bases in the Bay Area, that Cleophas and other African American men leaving the South, coming to California during the Second Great Migration. My father didn't tell us about the struggle and the challenges that he had leaving the South, leaving his parents and siblings to save his life. Like many people leaving certain areas of the country, he went to some cousins, some relatives that hid him, sheltered him, and gave him an opportunity to get a good paying job. I talked to some of my girlfriends, and they were talking about their fathers, and how they left the South, and how they came to the Bay Area for these jobs, the war. My father was in the Second World War. And reading and working with Cleophas' book, it it just came to me to realize we need to write our own story. By, By not writing or reading our story, our story is not told. I'm interested in knowing the thoughts of my parents and the pain, the suffering, the joy, the enlightenment that they experienced in their life, but they're gone. So now it's a matter of trying to piece together. And I'm just saying that we all have something to say. We all have something to leave we all have something that our children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and others need to know about us.
0: Leo said, next to Jesus Christ was Harry Bridges. <laughs> the old timers, you could not say anything bad about Harry. And that was a very good reason. Black people came from the cotton fields. They were sharecroppers. Not all. Cleopas was not that. But when they joined the ILWU Local 10, they joined the most integrated, the most democratic, and radical union in the United States of America, if not the world. This is an organization that continues to carry out these traditions. Whenever I start to have questions about the rank and file, they do something extraordinary to renew my faith in them. And I think that's one of the reasons why we are so committed in this publishing company and telling these stories. I remember Sister Brenda Stokely saying something to the effect, these are ordinary workers doing extraordinary things. Now, when I say ordinary, I don't mean that they don't they're not highly skilled, but they're workers who are doing extraordinary things, like refusing to unload South African cargo for 11 days. When you disrupt shipping schedules, you also disrupt freight schedules. You disrupt uh, trucking schedules. You strike at the heart of capitalism. And that's why longshore workers are so important. They're so important that just recently in the tentative agreement with the ILWPMA contract negotiations that has not been settled yet. But the employers said, we are offering Juneteenth as a holiday. (laughs) And listen, that was earned because when we shut down all 29 ports on the West Coast, Juneteenth, 2020, Angela Davis spoke before 20,000 people. We are still on the long road to freedom. Also that year, British Columbia, Vancouver, also shut down. Four years ago, a man by the name of John Fisher may not be a name that you remember, that you know offhand, but he owns the Oakland A's. I know you follow somebody in there follows baseball. He owns the Gap, Old Navy, and a whole lot of land. He was trying to build a 35,000-seat baseball stadium, 3,000 multi-million dollar skybox condominiums, a 400-room hotel, 2 million square feet of retail and commercial space. He also wanted to build a performing arts center all at the third busiest port on the west coast, Port of Oak. It was going to cost $12 billion. The city of Oakland is in terrible need of money for housing, the houseless, education, but yet you had Democratic elected officials that were doing the bidding of John Fisher to have that stadium and that development done. It would have been like building an amusement park on an assembly line. Absolutely absurd. But something very interesting happened. There was an alliance that developed between ILWU members and Oakland teachers. In the midst of this development proposal by John Fisher, who happens to be a major player in charter schools, both in financing and in operating them, Oakland schools are being closed down, especially in communities of color not to mention charter school development. We were able to connect the dots between privatization of the third business port on the West Coast, privatization of, of public schools, and closures of schools. Longshoremen refused to go to work for 24 hours. Oakland teachers had a strike. All that took place in 2022 on the eve of May Day because May Day fell on a Sunday. So the teachers and the IOWU members took an action that Friday before May Day, historic action. And I'm bringing this up because if we want to have a labor party, it's going to take that kind of organization in order to make it happen. School teachers, dock workers, they established an organization called SLAP! Schools and Labor Against Privatization. Revolutionary concept. This is the continuation of the work of men like Cleophas Williams, William Bill Chester, Leo Robinson, Harry Bridges, Henry Schmidt, and so many, many others. The legacy of the ILWU is a living history. It's something that's happening today. And so that's why it is so important for you to spread the word about this book. And mobilizing in our own name, the Million Worker March. Now, this is a slogan that started with the IWW. Goes like this, an injury to one is an injury to all. It has been adopted by the ILWU. An injury to one is an injury to all. Free Mumia abu jamal free them all free them all free them all thank you very much
2: i'm rick smith and this is labor history in two on this day in labor history the year was 1921 That was the day that the Green Bay Packers football team received a charter from the American Professional Football Association. A year later, this would become the National Football League. The Green Bay Club had started up two years earlier. Its original sponsor was the Indian Packing Company in Green Bay, Wisconsin. They packaged canned meat. Meat packaging was a major industry in the Midwest during this era. Packing plants in Chicago, Kansas City, Iowa, and Wisconsin processed the cattle and pigs raised in the west as meat to feed the nation. Curly Lambeau was a shipping clerk for the company. He helped to organize a group of local players into a football team. Curly persuaded his boss to donate money for the uniforms and it was there that the name Packers was born. When the Indian packing company fell on hard times they were bought out by Acme, another packing company based in Chicago. So, for a brief moment, the Green Bay Packers, one of the staunchest rivals of the Chicago Bears, was actually owned by a Chicago company. Although Acme only owned the team for one year, the team nicknamed Stuck. Lambeau was able to buy the team back, he went on to become the Packers coach, leading them to six championships. The Green Bay Packers are not the only American sports franchise that's name harkens back to a particular kind of labor. Another Wisconsin team, the Milwaukee Brewers baseball team, is a reference to that city's proud beer brewing tradition. In Big Ten sports, the Purdue Boilermakers and Nebraska Cornhuskers take to the gridiron each week with names that reflect the working traditions of the cities where the teams play Ball. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryinto.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two.
1: And that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, sure hope you do, like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show that's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Very special thanks this week to Mimi Rosenberg and Ken Nash, who host and produce the Building Bridges radio show on WBAI in New York City, where a longer version of today's talk originally appeared. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts news by subscribing to the Labor Heritage Foundation's weekly newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.